I mean, not the halfway, the work release. I have definitely uh, enjoyed that work. So, uh, thank y'all. Let's let's pray together. Uh, praise the Lord for Isaiah's uh, uh, good report. And uh, are there other other prayer requests? Other other things? Miss Patty, I mentioned Rachel's friend Patty had a fall and is in ten, intensive care in uh, in uh, Tupelo. Miss Patty Aguirre. Any others? All right, let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for our church. And Lord, thankful that you have brought us together, Lord, and just thank you for the spirit of, uh, uh, of cooperation and concern and, and also the, the desire to be, to be wise and to be um, good stewards of the resources that you've entrusted to us, Lord, and this, the spirit that we can discuss uh, difficult issues and, uh, and uh, different concerns and Lord, we thank you for Miss Billiter, and we thank you for her faithfulness through the years to help support the ministry of our church and the ministry of Redeemer Church, and we pray for her family today. Pray that you would grant them peace and grace. And Lord, we uh, do give you praise for uh, the good report for Isaiah, how even the surgeon has been amazed and surprised by, by the results, and we're thankful for your intervention and for your working through uh, the medical sciences to, uh, to bring to bring success to that procedure. Now we pray for his recovery and healing. And, and Lord, we continue to pray for Job and just ask that uh, 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 there would be some answer for, for him as well. And, uh, and uh, continue to pray for his family. Lord, we pray for Miss Patty and we ask that you would be gracious and kind to, uh, uh, to show uh, healing for her, to bring healing to her, Lord. We pray for her recovery. We pray for her husband, Bart, and her children, and we ask that you provide them comfort and peace and endurance as they go through through this time. And Lord, we uh, just again pray for Robin, and we pray, we thank you for his faithfulness, the growth that uh, has taken place in his life, Lord, and we pray for a favorable consideration of his parole or that your will would be done and that he would be accepting of your will, and if granted release, that he would successfully transition into the free world and, uh, and so we, we pray for pray for him and Lord we're thankful again for the opportunity that we have to meet together today and to offer you our praise and our worship and it is in Jesus name we pray amen all right let me invite your attention to uh, uh, the book of Psalms our call to worship this morning will come from Psalm 29 Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Give to the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is is full of majesty. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we have gathered together today to offer you our worship and Lord, to give you praise, to give you the glory that is due your name. Lord, we have gathered together to worship you in the beauty of your holiness. And Lord, we're thankful for your voice that you have spoken, that you've spoken through the things that you have made. You've spoken through the law written on our hearts and you've spoken perfectly and completely to us in the scriptures. And Lord, we're thankful that the Bible declares your glory and your majesty. And we can gaze upon your greatness by uh, looking into what you have told us about yourself, made known to us, revealed to us in your word. And so, Lord, may your glory draw our hearts to worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, may your glory show us uh, where we fall short. And may we uh, confess our sin turn from our sin, forsake our sin, and embrace uh, through repentance and faith the cleansing that Jesus provided for us on the cross so that we might stand before you and offer you our worship with clean hands and pure hearts. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified, you'd be pleased with our worship, and Lord, that we would be transformed, that we would grow in holiness and grow in godliness and grow in purity as we worship you this day. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, I invite you to take out your 
hymnals and turn with me to him 336 come thou almighty king Come thou almighty King, help us thy name to sing, help us to praise, Father all glorious, o'er all victorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days. Come thou incarnate word, gird on thy mighty sword, our prayer attend. Come and thy people bless, and give thy word success, spirit of holiness, on us descend. Come, holy comforter, thy sacred witness bear. In this uh, Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, we have spent nine weeks looking at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul lists uh, some fruit, some aspects of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, nine characteristics, nine godly traits, nine Christ-like attributes that the Holy Spirit produces in those who are led by the Spirit, who live by the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit, and who walk in the Spirit. And we have kind of, uh, unusual for us, but kind of done a topical survey of those nine characteristics. And so we have looked at that, and now we return our attention back to uh, the exposition and the explanation of Galatians chapter 5 as we see Paul's concluding remarks uh, to the fruit of the Spirit. He lists the fruit of the Spirit, and then he gives us a charge as a result of that. Uh, he gives us a charge in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. But before he gives that charge, he gives us two uh, marks of the person who is walking in the Spirit. So let's begin in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, where he lists the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll conclude with the charge that he gives us in verse 25. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have poured out, uh, poured out in abundance in Christ so that we might live, that we might be reborn, regenerated, recreated, convicted of sin, converted, convinced of the truth of the gospel, granted repentance and faith, and then the Holy Spirit producing his fruit in our lives and his giftedness for service in the body and the kingdom. Lord, we're thankful that in the Spirit we have life, life abundant, life everlasting, by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, and we're thankful that the Spirit brings to us a real union with Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us the grace to uh, be led by the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit, and that the Spirit would increasingly produce His fruit in our lives. Lord, we pray that, that we as a church, individually and corporately, would grow in holiness, grow in godliness, grow in Christ-likeness, grow in uh, attractiveness to those around us, and that our testimony would be pure and effective and attractive to the community in which you had planted community of grace church and so lord we pray that your spirit would teach us lead us into truth and then may he may he produce his fruit of godliness and christ-likeness in us and it is in jesus name we pray amen and so as we've been going through galatians we come now to uh, uh getting near the end where paul has listed for us the fruit of the holy spirit nine characteristics and this is not all it's not exhaustive it's not a complete list 
uh, and it's, it's characteristics that uh, specifically apply. As we've gone through and looked at them each, each individually, we've seen how they specifically apply to the situation that is going on there in the Galatian churches. We saw in Acts chapter 14, Paul went and planted these churches in Iconium and uh, Antioch, Pisidia, and, uh, and, and Derby and Lystra. He plants these churches, and now he uh, has heard the false teachers that have come in after him and are sowing division. Division is happening in the church because of the false teaching, because of the, the, the perversion of the truth. They're not being straightforward with the gospel. They're coming and adding requirements to the gospel. And so Paul has written, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's written the very words of God that address this controversy, these divisions, this conflict in the church. And so as he lists these fruit of the Spirit, he lists specific characteristics that are necessary to bring peace and unity within those Galatian churches. And uh, uh, all of these things that Paul lists, as we've seen, as we've gone through the list, uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit are also things that we're commanded to do. We're commanded to, uh, to love one another. We're commanded to, uh, uh, to, to, to have joy and peace and to be long-suffering. We're commanded to be kind and good and faithful, gentle, and uh, exercise self-control. Uh, but as we've gone through, we see that we cannot obey those commands in our own strength. If in our flesh we're trying to do these things, we will fall short and there will not be unity in Christ's likeness. There will be division and worldliness. And so Paul lists these characteristics, and then after he lists them, he gives a charge. He gives a charge to the Galatian churches. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So that's the charge. That's the command. He's listed these characteristics, and now he says those are the characteristics that the Holy Spirit produces in those who live by the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit, who walk in the Spirit. And so let us walk in the Spirit, that He might produce these fruits in our life, this fruit in our life, so that our church might be unified, so that we might grow in godliness, and so that we even might be attractive to the world outside, that they would be drawn to Christ because of the testimony that they see in us. They see changed lives. They see transformed lives. And so the charge, verse 25, if we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. But before he issues that charge, between the list and the charge, uh, he gives us two marks of, uh, of uh, those who are walking in the Spirit. And so he, uh, uh, he tells us that, uh, that there's no law against the fruit of the Spirit, so the Holy Spirit produces his fruit without restraint. And then second, those who walk in the Spirit have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So let's look at those two marks together uh, as we consider the charge that Paul gives the command. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. What are the marks of a person who is walking in the Spirit? Number one, the first mark of a person walking in the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit produces His fruit without restraint. You know, it's kind of an interesting statement. You look at Paul and he says uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says in verse 23, against such there is no law. Now that's kind of an interesting statement. You know, he gives these characteristics, these godly characteristics, these Christ-like characteristics, and he says there's no law against these things. And we talked about the law as we went through uh, the book of Galatians. You know, the purpose of the law is to restrain. The purpose of the law is to keep people from doing things that are wrong, keep people from doing things that are harmful, keep doing things that might harm them, quit doing things that might harm themselves, or, or more importantly, when we talk about civil law, might harm somebody else. Laws are written to govern human behavior. Law, laws are, are, are written to restrain our sinful natures. Laws are written, given to us, when we start doing something we ought not do, then a law needs to be given to restrain that behavior, and penalty and punishment is, is, uh, is assigned to that. And so law is given to provide restraint. And you remember the church's Galatian, that was their big fear. Paul has come and said, we're not under the law, we're under grace, and, and, uh, uh, and people feared that if, if there wasn't any law, there would be no restraint. 
And people would come and bring their sinful habits and passions and lust into the church, and it would destroy the testimony of the church. It would destroy the, uh, the unity of the church. And so they feared the lack of the law because they feared a lack of restraint. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit now gives that restraint. And so he says here, against such there is no law. You know, And I thought about this. You know, uh, Laws are usually written when people start doing something that is harmful. When I was a little kid, there was no law, it was not illegal to text and drive when I was a kid. You know why? Because nobody was doing it. Nobody had the capability. We didn't even know what texting was when I was a little kid. When I first started to drive, I didn't, it wasn't on my learner's permit test. Uh, you can't text and drive because it wasn't against the law. It wasn't illegal because nobody was doing it. And so there was no need to give a law to keep people from doing it because nobody was doing it. Nobody could do it. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody would do it. But then over time, our cell phones got invented, and people started texting and driving. It wasn't against the law. It wasn't illegal. People would text and drive, and people began to see, you know what? That's not safe. That is a harmful behavior. That is an undesirable behavior. If somebody's texting and driving, they're taking their eyes off of the road, their hands off of the wheel, their mind off of what they are doing, and that is not safe when you're driving something that weighs thousands of pounds 70 miles an hour down the road. And so somebody said, we ought to make a law about that. <laughs> we need to do something about that. So, so the law came when people started doing something that was harmful, harmful to themselves, harmful to others, uh, potential damage to property, and so the law was given to restrain what people were doing, to keep them from doing something that caused harm. And so laws were passed, and now it's illegal to text and drive in most states. And uh, there is a penalty assigned to that. You can be fined as much as $500 for texting and driving. And so the law was given to restrain something that's undesirable. And so we see that, that helps us kind of understand Paul's statement here where he lists the fruit of the Holy Spirit and he says against those things there is no law. Well, why is there no law against any of these things? Why is there not a law against loving your neighbor? Why is there not a law against having joy? Why is there not a law against experiencing peace or being long-suffering, enduring wrong without retaliating? Why is there no law against being kind? No law against being good and faithful? No law against exercising self-control? Why does Paul say against these things there is no law? That's because these things are not harmful. These things will not hurt anybody. In fact, these things are helpful. And we don't want to restrain people from loving and having joy and experiencing peace and being kind and patient and, and, and gentle. We don't want to restrain that. We don't want to hold that back. We want people to do it more and more and more. And so instead of passing a law against these things, there is no law because the desire is for us to produce those fruit, for the Holy Spirit to produce that fruit in us we cooperate with the power of the Holy Spirit to produce this fruit without restraint. Don't hold back. Don't, don't, uh, don't, don't limit the amount of love that you are uh, willing to show. Don't limit your joy, your peace, your long-suffering. Don't restrain. Don't hold back. Work with the Holy Spirit to produce as much of this fruit as He will, as you can, in cooperation with Him. Produce it without restraint. You know, and even the world, even though the world might think that some of these characteristics are signs of weakness, there is no restraint. Even in the, So God gives no law against these things. In fact, he commands us to uh, have these fruits produced. But even the world thinks these are attractive characteristics. The world may think that some of them are signs of weakness, like being long-suffering, you know, enduring wrong without fighting back or, or being gentle or meek, 
sacrificing your will for the will of another. The church might think these are signs. I mean, the world might think these are signs of weakness. The church might think that too. <laughs> might think that these are signs of weakness. But even so, they think they're desirable characteristics. And even the world says the world would be a better place if there was more love. The world would be a better place if there was more joy. The world would be a better place if there was more peace, more long-suffering, more kindness. The problem is that the world doesn't have the capability to do it because these are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But there is no restraint. They're not going to pass a law. They're not going to tell you that you need to be less loving, that you need to be less kind. And so the first mark of the Holy Spirit, of one who is walking in the Spirit, is the production of the fruit of the Holy Spirit without restraint. Without holding back, there is nothing to hold you back. There is nothing to prohibit the production of this fruit. There is nothing, no reason, nothing to fear, no reason to fear punishment or restraint. Work with the Holy Spirit to grow in godliness, to have Him produce His fruit in you, and that will be good for you, it will be good for your church, and it will be attractive to the world. There is no law. It is not unlawful to love. It is not unlawful to have joy, to, to show peace, to experience peace, to be long-suffering, to be kind, to be good, to be faithful, to be gentle, and to exercise self-control. No law, no restraint, nothing, no reason to hold back. And so as we think of the mark of the walking in the Spirit being the production of fruit without restraint, and certainly the application is we need to cooperate with the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul tells us, we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, and if we walk in the Spirit, He will produce His fruit in us. He will produce that fruit without restraint. And it is good for us as individuals, it is good for our church, and it's good for our community, and it's good for our testimony in the world if we produce these fruit without restraint. And so the application certainly is that we pray that God would help us to grow in godliness. Help, God would help us as individuals and corporately as a church to grow in godliness, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in holiness, that the Holy Spirit would produce those characteristics, those Christ-like characteristics, those godly attributes in us so that our testimony would be pure and attractive to those around us. And that we would be known, people would say, those are disciples of Jesus because they love one another. And so we, we want to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit without restraint, nothing holding back. Don't fear punishment. Don't fear uh, judgment. Produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Work with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit so that He produces His fruit without restraint. But I think another thing we need to say about the law, none of these things are against the law. But also, Paul is not laying down a new law. He's not, he's not laying down a new law saying, well, you got to love. you got the law of love. He talks about the law of love in, uh, uh, in verse uh, 14. The law is fulfilled in one word. Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he is not laying down a new law. He's not saying that that is how we are saved. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. He's not laying down a new law saying this is how you make yourself right with God. By love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He's not laying down a new law saying this is how you become right with God. If you produce these things, then that's a new law. And that's how you earn God's acceptance. That is not what Paul is saying he is saying that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, we have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has brought us a union with Christ. We live in Christ and Christ lives in us. And because we are living the life of Christ, it is through our union with Christ that these Christ-like characteristics are produced. And so he's not giving us a new law. He's not taking away the old Ten Commandments and giving us these new Nine Commandments. He's saying these are the fruit, the outworking of your union with Christ. Your life in Christ produces these Christ-like characteristics. So, so he's not giving us a new law. These things are not against the law. 
nor are they the new law, but they are the result, the fruit, the outworking of our union with Christ that comes to us by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And so uh, the first mark of one who walks in the Spirit is the production of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces His fruit without restraint, without limit. And we pursue it without limit. Nothing holding back. We want to grow in godliness. We want to grow in Christ-likeness. We want to work with the Holy Spirit for Him to produce His fruit in us, these godly attributes. And so the first mark of one who walks in the Spirit is producing the fruit without restraint. The second mark of one who walks in the Spirit is that he has crucified the flesh. The one who lives in the Spirit, who is led by the Spirit, who walks in the Spirit, has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In verse 24, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now that word crucified means to affix to a cross, to fasten somebody to a cross, to nail somebody to a cross. And we know from our New Testament that that, that was a means of execution. A person was nailed to a cross, affixed to a cross, fastened to a cross so that they might be killed. It was a form of execution. It was a particularly horrendous form of execution. A form of execution that was saved for the most despicable and hated and dangerous of criminals. And so the crucifixion, so, so what Paul is saying, those who are Christ have put to death, have executed their flesh with its passions and desires. They have put to death their flesh. The second mark of one who walks by the Spirit is they have crucified the flesh, put the flesh to death, killed it, executed it. Now, most of the time in the New Testament that that word crucified is used, it is used to refer to the death of Jesus. Jesus was affixed to a cross. He was fastened to a cross. He was nailed to a cross, and he was lifted up to die. And as he died on that cross, he satisfied the wrath of God against the sins of all who would ever come to him in repentance and faith. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly sinless. And yet he died the death that was reserved for the most despicable of criminals, the most hated of, of sinners, the, the worst of the worst, because he was not dying for his own sins, but he was dying for the sins of every single person who would come to him in repentance and faith. He was experiencing the full force of the wrath of God. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was put to death. Jesus was executed. Jesus was killed. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted and God's wrath has been turned away. Just about every time the word crucified appears in the New Testament, it is referring to the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His atoning sacrifice, his death in our place. But it's interesting that Paul uses the word crucified in the book of Galatians four times. And only one time. In Galatians, is he speaking of the death of Christ? Paul uses the word crucified four times in the six chapters of Galatians, but only one of those times is he speaking about the death of Christ, and that's when he describes his preaching in chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And so here, here Paul's talking about his preaching, and this is a great challenge to preachers everywhere. How does Paul describe his preaching? It was a, a portrayal of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The crucified Christ was the content of Paul's preaching. Paul came and preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. He died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and on the third day he was risen from the dead according to the scripture. Paul came and he knew nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And his preaching was so powerful and so vivid that he could say that in his preaching before your very eyes it was like you could see Jesus Christ 
being crucified as Paul preached the gospel, the good news, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified, fastened to a cross, dying for the sins of his people. And uh, certainly application for preachers. Endeavor to preach so that you could say that in my preaching, before your eyes, Jesus was portrayed as crucified. He uses that to describe the content of his preaching. But the other three times that he uses the word crucified in the book of Galatians, we have one of them here. They've crucified the flesh. The other three times is in chapter 2, verse, or the other two times, chapter 2, verse 20, and then chapter 6, verse 14. And in those three passages, he uses the crucifixion of Jesus as a metaphor, as, as a comparison. And he takes that image, and it's a vivid way of talking about our union with Christ. So powerful is our union. When we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, we've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and gives us union with Christ. And our union with Christ is so powerful, so significant, so life-changing that it can be said and it is said that we have been crucified with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. That's what Paul says in, in uh, Galatians chapter 2. And I'll begin in verse 19. For though, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so here Paul says our union with Christ is so intense and so total and so significant and so life-transforming. Our union with Christ is such that it can be said that we have been crucified with Christ. We have been put to death. Our old man, our old sinful nature, that old man, that sinful nature that enslaved us, that put us into bondage and that condemned us to all eternity in hell, that sinful nature, that sinful man, those sinful thoughts, those sinful affections, those sinful words, those sinful deeds. That old man has been put to death. Our problem was not that we did sin. Our problem that was that we were a sinner and those doings of sin, those acts of sin came from our sinful nature. That old man. But Paul says, that old man in whom I was in bondage, that was a slave to sin, that man has been put to death. He no longer has power over me. He no longer has dominion over me. I've been crucified with Christ. That old man is dead, and I have been raised to walk in newness of life, walk in union with Christ where he produces his life. His life is lived through mine. And so our union with Christ is not only that we died with him, but we have been raised with him, and the life that we now live, we live in Christ, in union with Christ. Christ in us and through us, producing his work, his characteristics, his attributes in us. And so Paul says that old man has been put to death. I am no longer enslaved to that old nature. I am no longer enslaved to sin. I am no longer condemned in guilt and shame. Because I have been put to death with Christ, the price has been paid, and I've been raised to walk in newness of life. By God's grace, through my faith in Jesus Christ, I've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so Paul uses the word crucifixion as a vivid way to show our union with Christ and that we are no longer slaves to our sin and our sinful nature. And then he uses again at the end of the book... In chapter 6, verse 14, and we'll get to this text down the road, but I want to look at it today because it's Paul's use of the word crucified. It helps us understand what he says in chapter 5, verse 24. Galatians 6, 14, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. So in Galatians 2, he talks about my old man, my old nature, being crucified with Christ, my union with Christ in his death as he paid the penalty for my sin, and now my union with Christ in his resurrection, the new life that I now live in the flesh. And here in chapter 6, verse 14, he talks about the world being crucified to me 
and me to the world. The world has been put to death. The world has been killed. The world has been executed to me and me to the world. And so what is Paul saying there? Well, he's saying that our fellowship, our partnership with the world has been broken. When somebody dies, our fellowship with them is broken. We no longer have fellowship with that person. We no longer have a relationship with that person or, you know, uh, in, in the here and now. Our, our, that, that fellowship, that partnership is broken by death. And so Paul is saying, by the cross of Christ, the world has been crucified to me. I am no longer partners with the world. I no longer have fellowship with the world. I no longer love the things of the world. I no longer have affection and relationship with the things of the world. The world is dead to me. It's been put to death. And I have been put to death to the world. No longer enslaved to its enticements. No longer powerless against the ruler of this world and the attractions of this world and the inevitable drawing of my flesh to it. Now that partnership, that fellowship has been severed by the death of Christ. I am united with Christ. This world is not my home. And if I love the things of the world, the love of God is not in me because the things of the world are contrary to the things of Christ, the things of God. And so Paul uses this term crucifixion to show our union with Christ and his death and his resurrection and the breaking of fellowship with the world. It's the world that crucified Jesus. And when we died with Christ, the world is now crucified to us. No longer have partnership, fellowship with the world. This is enemy territory. And so that brings us back to chapter 5, verse 24. The second mark of those who walk in the Spirit is that they have crucified their flesh. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so those who walk in the Spirit produce the fruit without restraint, seek to produce the fruit without restraint, and they have crucified their flesh. Now, when we talk about crucifying our flesh, we know that uh, uh, that was not total and complete and immediate. We know that because right up uh, before verse 17, Paul talks about the flesh lusting against the Spirit. And so the fatal blow has been dealt to my flesh, but it still has an impact. We're a country folk, right? Chicken with a head cut off. <laughs> the fatal blow has been blown, but the chicken's still running around the barnyard. <laughs> the same is true of our flesh. The fatal blow has been struck at the cross of Jesus, but... When I came to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, he didn't immediately take me into heaven. He left me in the earth, and he left me in this body, this body of flesh. And, and this body, and, and so we see in verse 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit lusts against the flesh. And Paul talks about, uh, even in verse, verse 20, when he talked about the crucif you know, crucified with Christ, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And so, you know, I didn't leave this body when I came to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. It was crucified. The fatal blow was dealt. And yet I've still got to live the rest of my physical life in this body. And this body is still yet unredeemed. And this body still has limitations and needs. As long as I live in this body, I have got to eat. If I stop eating, I'll stop living in this body. As long as I live in this body, I've got to drink. I've got to sleep. I've got to work. I've got to reproduce or have companionship. There are needs that God has created and given to us in our bodies. There are needs that we have that remind us that we are limited, that we are tem temporary, that we are creatures. And when we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but none of those needs are done away with. 
I still got to eat. I still got to drink. I still got to sleep. I still got to work. I still got to reproduce. I still have to have companionship. Those are needs. And God has given me appetites to remind me of my need. God has created us with appetites. And uh, it doesn't take too many hours for my body to remind me that I'm limited and I'm weak and I got to eat to stay alive. My body is very good at communicating that to me. <laughs> My body is very good at, at communicating to me that I got to drink. My body's really good at communicating to me when it's time to go to sleep. My body's also good at communicating to me that I've got to work. I've got to work with my hands to provide my needs. If I don't work, I don't eat. My body reminds me constantly of my need for companionship. It's not good for a man to be alone. And when I come to Jesus in repentance and faith, those needs don't stop. And those appetites don't stop because my body is limited and I'm living my life in the flesh. And so what does it mean when Paul says those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? There are appetites that I have to feel. Things that I have to do, needs that I must satisfy. But when I crucify my flesh with its passions and desires, then in the power of the Holy Spirit, I put to death my natural tendency to satisfy those appetites outside of the boundaries that God has set. God has given me these needs. He has given me these appetites. It's part of me being a creature. And the appetite is good because it reminds me of my need. Reminds me that I'm weak and that I'm temporary and I'm dependent upon God's daily provision. But God has also set boundaries to the satisfaction of my appetites. And before I came to Jesus, that old man, that old man that's been crucified with Christ, that old man was a slave to his appetites. And the desires to fill those needs, to meet those needs in a way that... He wanted, even if it meant transgressing God's boundaries, going against the limits that God had set. And so I believe that crucifying the flesh with all its passions and desires means bringing those things into submission to God. Jesus submitted himself even unto death, even death on the cross. And even though it was his will as a human, as a man, and his, and his humanity to have that cup taken away from him, he submitted his desires to the Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Talked about that in self-control. Well, so we still have these appetites. We still have these things. We still have to eat. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't overeat. I have crucified my passions, my desires. I'm not a sin, a slave to my passions. And so while I must eat, I must also avoid the sin of gluttony. Crucifying my passions and desires, I still, I've got to drink. But I drink while avoiding the sin of drunkenness. I still got to sleep. I got to sleep. But I sleep. But I avoid, I seek in the power of the Holy Spirit to avoid the sin of sloth or being a sluggard. I've got to work. God created me to work. We worked before the fall. We worked with our hands. And we got to work in order to be fulfilled and to to stay healthy and to stay in in shape. We got to work. We don't work. We don't eat. Got to eat. But I have to guard myself against sacrificing my physical health, my spiritual health, or my family on the altar of my job. I got to work. But work is not the end. It's not my total objective and I bring my work into obedience to God. I don't sacrifice my spiritual health, my physical health, or my family on the altar of my job. I've got the need to reproduce or to have companionship, but I bring that desire into captivity, recognizing that any sexual activity outside of the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman is sinful. 
Now bring those passions, those desires, those appetites under control. And the only way, the only appropriate way to meet that need is in obedience to God in the covenant of one man, one woman, in a covenant relationship of marriage. And so I still have these needs. But to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires means it's no longer my master. Those needs are not my master. I got to meet them. I got to stay alive until the Lord calls me home. But I can meet those needs within the boundaries, within the constraints that God has ordained, that God has given. I am not enslaved to my passions, but my appetites are controlled by the Holy Spirit. It has been put to death. And so, yes, we still live in the flesh, but the flesh is not our master. We have made it our slave and with life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave, who loved us and gave himself for us. And so our appetites, our cravings, our desires, our needs aren't our master, but we master them and bring them under the control of the Holy Spirit and we meet our needs within the boundaries God has set. So two marks of the man who walks, the person who walks in the Spirit, producing the fruit without restraint, and having crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, put it to death so that they no longer have mastery over him. And then Paul concludes with the charge. We read it first. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And it is by the Spirit of God that we have life. We were born dead in trespasses and sin. We were born with a sinful nature. And because we were born sinners, as soon as we were capable of moral conscious action, we sinned against God in, in, in thought and in attitude and words and deeds. Those sins came from our sinful nature. We were dead in trespasses and sin. But by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, when we come to Jesus Christ and we believe that He lived a sinless life, that He satisfied God's righteousness, and then He satisfied the demands against of the law against me as he took the penalty for me I come to Jesus in repentance and faith my old man that old nature is crucified with Christ and God raised Jesus from the dead and my union with him by grace through faith is such that I too have been raised to walk in newness of life and the life I live in this flesh even though I'm still limited and I still have needs and things that I've got to do I live this life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who gave himself, who loved me and gave himself for me, the crucifixion of the flesh. So we live in the Spirit. The Spirit is the source of our life, the source of our union with Christ. And these things, these characteristics, that's not a new law. That's not how I obtain union with Christ. Union with Christ comes from the power of the Holy Spirit by God's grace through faith. And it is the union with Christ that produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those come from my union with Christ. And so Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So we live in the Spirit, we've been born again. But we also have a responsibility and a duty and an obligation to walk in the Spirit. We live in the Spirit. That's a reality. We're union with Christ. And then our Christian life is we become in practice what we are in reality. We live in the Spirit. We have the life of the Spirit. He's the source of our spirit. And then we grow in our walking in the Spirit and becoming what we are. He declares us to be righteous. We work to have practical righteousness. We are union with Christ. And we work with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And He produces Christ-like characteristics without restraint. So what's the, the marks of a person who walks in the Spirit? Produces the fruit of the Spirit without restraint. And he's crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so practical application, we've already talked a little bit about that. You know, we need to pray that God, would be, that God would be pleased to produce his fruit in us. And we would cooperate with him and we would grow in holiness. We would grow in godliness. We would grow in Christ-likeness. We would grow in these Christ-like attributes so that our testimony is pure and attractive to those around us. The, the world 
recognizes there needs to be more love. There needs to be more joy and more peace. And we pray that God would produce this fruit in us as individuals and corporately. That our testimony, our godliness would be attractive to those around us. And that God would be pleased to add to our number those that are being saved. And we pray that, uh, you know, we have crucified the flesh and we need to live lives free from the bondage, the slavery of our desires, our appetites, our needs. And we need to bring all of those needs under submission to the Holy Spirit, submission to the will of God. We meet those needs, but guard ourselves from sinful excess or from going outside the boundaries that God has ordained. Again, that our testimony would be pure. Oh, it's good for us. It's good for our church. It's good for our testimony. When we crucify the flesh with all its passions and desires, and we meet our needs within the boundaries God has established. So let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth of it. Lord, we're thankful for the working of the Holy Spirit. Thankful that he makes us alive and unites us with Christ. Lord, we thank you for our union with Christ. And Lord, I pray that all we, like Paul, say, I was crucified with Christ and yet I live. Not I, but Christ lives within me. The life I live in the flesh right now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May we, like Paul, say, I don't have anything to brag about except the cross of Jesus, by whom the world was crucified to me and me to the cross. Lord, produce your fruit in us. Help us grow in godliness, Christ-likeness, godly attributes, and help us to battle the desires of our flesh and meet our needs, but within the constraints you have ordained. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's sing a final hymn. We're going to sing hymn 663.